Welcome everybody to another edition of the What to Watch When You've Already Watched Everything podcast. I'm Richard Krause. Today, we have three more titles of three movies that maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't, but all of them are worth your time and all of them will help eat up the minutes and hours that make up self-isolation. First, let's start with Christine. If it bleeds, it leads is an accepted mantra around newsrooms these days, but back in 1974, it was a new controversial idea. Christine Chubbuck, played by Rebecca Hall, was an investigative reporter at a local ABC affiliate in Sarasota, Florida, and she was particularly disdainful of the idea until she became the poster child for new sensationalism. In Christine, a based-on-true-events film, Chubbuck is working at a local station called WZRB. She's a steely presence, a serious person doing light news. People are listening to me, she says, so I have to be sure I'm really saying something. Reports on strawberry festivals and local events are the station's stock in trade, but the station manager, played by Tracy Letts, is desperate to get higher ratings. How? Juicier stories, he says. If it bleeds, it leads. When the station owner decides to poach one or two of the Sarasota on-air talents for his much larger Baltimore news division, Christine sees that as a way out. Her progression to the larger market is stymied by illness and depression and culminates with the news reporter becoming the news. On July 15, 1974, Chubbuck was on air reading the news when she announced, in keeping with WZRB's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts and in living color, you are going to see complete coverage of an attempted suicide before putting a gun to her head and pulling the trigger. I asked Rebecca Hall what drew her to the script for Christine. One of the things that I really loved about the script was it doesn't it doesn't try to give tidy, mawkish explanations or, or, or go out of its way to justify or explain or make you feel sorry for her in a kind of obvious way. Because I think it, but I think it, what ends up happening is it's a very compassionate film because it presents her in the way that a society at the time would have seen her. They mm -hmm. wouldn't have known what was going on with her. Right. She would have been a cipher. And yet, like the community in the film, I hope the audience still love her. So it was finding a way to, it was a finding a way to sort of really try and make people who see it experience what it might be like to feel like that without really knowing what's going on or why or all those things, but just the actual physical feeling of it and feel some sympathy towards it. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by this idea of what, what we as people are and how self-conscious we are about what we present in the world and to me Christine is a really stark example of this because she's someone who goes through her life every day waking up and going okay what is it what does it look like to be normal how do mm -hmm. I what she perceives to be normal and she looks at everyone for affirmation constantly am I doing okay did I get away with it today am I am I like you am I accepted and sometimes she's really good at it and sometimes she's really bad at it and it's sort of funny and charming in its way but regardless the community love her and do accept her and mm -hmm. the tragedy of the film is that she doesn't see that and that's what i mean by it's actually a compassion it's a, it's a film about those things and right. those sort of that which is counterintuitively quite optimistic <laughs> <laughs> about people yeah about people yeah, yeah. 
The events in Christine are well documented, so the shocking finale doesn't come so much as a shock, but the inevitable consequence of history. With the element of surprise removed, what's left is a look at a woman at the heart of the story. Hall plays Chubbuck as an almost otherworldly presence, someone who doesn't quite feel comfortable in her own skin, always judging herself and those around her. You're not always the most approachable person, her co-worker, played by Michael C. Hall, tells her, and that is the beauty of Hall's work. In a terrific performance, she elevates the movie. She plays Chubbuck as aloof but human, edgy, and without a trace of sentimentality. Next, let's have a look at a Michael Caine film. Harry Brown is a gritty Grand Torino with British accents and a dash of death wish. Kane plays Brown as High Noon's Gary Cooper, but instead of being set in the wide open plain, the action in this teabag western takes place in the urban terrain of the Elephant and Castle section of London. I asked Michael Caine about shooting in the neighborhood where he grew up. And I always said I come from the slums, you know, which I do. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, um, but uh, when I went back, I didn't realize how lucky I was, because when I talked to the boys there, I, uh, after when we were shooting, like late at night, I'd get the real boys out from there, who would normally be quite scary, but with me they were fine, because I was one of them, you know, even though I was an old man and they were young kids, uh, uh, and what I realized was I was very lucky because I had two things. They didn't have. I had a very happy family life and I got an education. I mean, I didn't go to Oxford. I, I went to grammar school. I got the 11 plus and scholarship, they used to call it. And the other, I had, so I had two things, very valuable things that they didn't have. And one thing I didn't have that they did have, which was drugs. We didn't have drugs. In, and drugs are, are, are the basis of just how feral they have become. And that because it, 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 in the end, it wipes out all feeling for the other person because it has to you know I mean there's a sequence in there where I go to buy a gun off two drug drugs I mean those two people are unfortunately all very real in that world and, and there are lots of them Kane plays a widowed man who strikes back after a gang of feral yobs kills his best friend and confidant. D.I. Alice Frampton, played by Emily Mortimer, a persistent but ineffectual detective with the thankless job of policing the council estate, suspects Harry is a part-time vigilante but can't prove it, and even if she could, her partner is ambivalent to the pensioner's gun-slinging ways. As far as I'm concerned, he says, Harry Brown is doing us a favor. I asked Michael Caine how he would describe the violence in Harry Brown. This is not a violent film. It's a film about real violence. A violent film is you see the knife go across and, and the blood come out. There's none of that. There's none of that. Uh, but it's about how it happens. I mean, read your newspaper and you'll see every single incident in this film. One of the reasons I made this film is as a warning. You know, uh, uh, it's there and it's getting worse. You know, and if the authorities like to look at it and listen, you know, but uh, I mean, they'll say, well, it's not like that. We're pulling the... They can say a bit it's not like that because where we actually shot the movie in those flats, those apartments, they're coming down. There's two and a half billion pounds being spent at the Elephant and Castle. But where are you going to move them to who came out of there? And I asked a counsellor, he, he said, as far away from each other as possible. So... <laughs> So you're also breaking up, a, not only gang, you're breaking up a social uh, mode, you know. Uh, so 
It's a very, very negative thing, but I think it's scary because I don't think they've got a hang of it, and I, I think they're scrubbing it, pushing it under the table. And I, I think we might get into a bit of trouble in England pulling it out from under the table. They might hit at us, yeah. Harry Brown is a lurid picture of a crime-ridden society. Its bleak worldview effectively illustrates the flip side of the swing in London that Kane came to personify in the 1960s. It's a dark and menacing world where one character admits, I'm scared all the time, Harry. But all the atmosphere in the world wouldn't be worth a hill of bangers and mash if you didn't believe that an 80-year-old man with an inhaler could effectively turn vigilante, take the law into his own hands, and go all dirty hairy on kids a fraction of his age. I asked Michael Caine if there were any parallels between Harry Brown and some of his other famous characters like Harry Palmer or Jack Carter. Harry Palmer wasn't a soldier. See, this, this is a soldier. Jack Carter wasn't a soldier, he was a villain and a killer. The, po the whole point about uh, uh, um, Harry Brown is that he's an innocent old man. And he's forced to do this. And he's a victim, not a perpetrator. And there's one line in it, uh, the, the, the policeman's, uh, one of the police says, I think Harry Brown killed these five guys. He said, what are you nuts? He's 76 year old and he's got emphysema. But he did do it. Yeah. You know, and he had to do it. He's a victim. We're all victims of it. And, and, you know, it's got to be stopped. In a film ripe with nice performances, Mortimer is marvelous and Jack O'Connell is frightening as a young thug, Michael Caine shines, giving us a well-rounded portrait of a man who was a trained killer, he was a Marine, with a certain set of skills, and as a defeated old man who has seen too much death and strife in his life. I asked Michael Caine how this movie changed him. The thing with this movie is it changed me. Uh, how so? In as much as I started out, let's go out and make a film about killing all these scumbags. And then I met these people and realised they were helpless just as much as the victims. Right. And they, they'd been neglected and they needed help, you know, which is, would be a very unpopular thing. We're going to help a load of killer yeah. junkies, you know, yeah. give, put them in prison. Prison doesn't do anything. No, it just teaches them how yeah, to be clever. Teach them how to, be, how to be clever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Caine is at his best when he plays the extremes. He's the heartbroken pensioner on one hand, and then he's the lethal killer who tosses off Tarantino-esque one-liners like, you failed to maintain your weapon, son, to a drug dealer whose gun jammed at the wrong moment. It is this performance that humanizes the film's often passionate pontificating on a broken Britain. As my interview with Michael Caine closed, I told him that his director, Daniel Barber, said that Michael Caine is the only person in Britain that everybody loves. I asked him, how does it feel to be an icon? This is what he said. Yeah, I don't know. I, you, you, I said, they said, well, you're an icon now. I said, well, I don't know how to do that. I said, because there's no, you can't go, there's no lessons, you know, and there's not a special icon bar where you all go and meet up and ask that what you're supposed to do. I said, hey, you call me an icon, now I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so it, it, do you just consider yourself uh, a, a working actor? I consider myself lucky. Lucky. I've been lucky. Finally, let's have a look at a sort of kind of vampire film. 
In Let Me In, Chloe Grace Moretz is Abby, a 12-year-old vampire who poses as the daughter of Thomas, played by Richard Jenkins, an adult who takes care of the, quote, wet work required to keep Abby fed. She forms a special friendship with Owen, played by Cody Smith McPhee, a young neighbor who's being bullied at school. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. The movie is an American remake of a Swedish art house hit. Let Me In, the English language remounting of Let the Right One In, joins a long list of movies to paste an American stamp on its cinematic passport. I asked director Matt Reeves what he responded to from the original Swedish story. I think what I responded to in Lindquist's tale was the idea of the metaphor, this sort of, you know, vampire story really being used to describe how it feels to be a bullied kid, how it feels to feel so alone that to go to school feels like a horror story, to feel like it feels like a horror movie, and that the development of all of that in the movie was really less about the moments of sort of shock or the moments when things actually happened, but much more about the drawn-out anticipation that something horrendous is coming. And I think that that's something that I, I don't know, I guess I relate to palpably, but I tried to, as much as possible in the telling of this story, move it into Owen's point of view. I wanted to do it in a kind of, in a much more classical way, in a kind of Hitchcockian-inspired way, or like a Polanski film or something, where you really get into the way the character would see things, but in a very classical sort of restrained sense. And I love that kind of filmmaking. And I think the fun thing about it is, is the idea of taking you through an experience and making you identify with that character, even as they participate in or are part of really disturbing things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a scene where Richard Jenkins begins the sort of, it's the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. He goes out to get blood for, for Abby the second time, and it goes wrong. And that was really all inspired for me by Dial M for Murder, because I started thinking, you know, what did Hitchcock do? He did this thing where he had a scene that was all about how they were going to kill Grace Kelly. And you're thinking, oh my God, these guys are going to kill Grace Kelly. This is terrible. He tells you everything they're going to do. And then none of those things happens. And Bit by bit, you find yourself, despite yourself, starting to actually identify with the killer. And you start thinking, oh my god, oh, oh, how is he going to get out of this? And then when she actually stabs him, it's tremendously tragic. And it's somehow he's turned the tables and he's implicated you because you've actually felt yourself as a killer and actually got involved in his killing of Grace Kelly, which is insane. And That's I right. thought, well, you know, if we could do something like that where you see Richard go out and do something once and you just see it and you're, you're, you're horrified by it, then when that starts to happen again, if you start to then go bit by bit through that event as it unravels, that by the end, you might find yourself almost rooting for him to kill that kid. Just anything to get out of that situation. And that's what I love about movies is that they can put you in people's shoes and you can start to sort of see the world the way they do for just a moment and that's really exciting. A vampire film without a castle, a cape, or a coffin, Let Me In earned good reviews for its respectful treatment of the source material. It takes the vampire genre and uses it as a way to describe the pain of adolescence, creating a very realistic and relatable sort of story even though it's a vampire tale. I asked Matt Reeves about creating a universal story in a very specific genre. This is what he had to say. To this day, if you were to show me a picture of Linda Blair and her Reagan McNeil getup, and I wasn't prepared, you didn't tell me you were going to show it to me, I would, the, the hair stands up on my neck and I, the blood runs cold and I, I have a visceral reaction. There are things in those movies that just tear me apart, but it's really the reason these things are so effective, I think, is because they are about something other than what the metaphor, you know, other than what the surface part is. The, the metaphor that they are um, using 
is a way to explore a lot of really sort of real and frightening things and, and to explore our own fears. And that's why, you know, you can make a movie about a giant monster trashing New York and it's really not about that at all, you know, under the surface. And that's, that's sort of what makes it challenging and interesting as, as a filmmaker. And I think that the that genre films, my favorite genre films, as you're saying, um, are, ne- are never about the myth itself. They're about what the myth is using to describe that's actually quite real. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you find something there that appeals to you or maybe that you've seen but you want to revisit. All three of them are really great movies. I'm Richard Krause. Until we speak again, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay home. We'll talk to you again soon.